Hey everyone, welcome to the Food About Town podcast. My name is Chris Lindstrom and I'm your host. This week in episode 26, I talked to Kevin McCann of McCann's Local Meats, located at the edge of the wedge near the corner of South Clinton and Gregory Avenues. We talked for a little while about the new store that he has opened, which is a butcher shop and sandwich shop. We talked about his background, talked a little bit about Korean food, and we talked about whole animal butchery, which is a big feature of his new store. Uh, I'm a big fan of what they're doing over there, so please check out McCann's, and it's a fantastic sandwich shop, so you really should go. And they're open most days until 7, I think Saturdays till 5. So please enjoy this podcast. Next week will be episode 27, and it'll be Sean O'Donnell from Aunt Rosie's. Enjoy. So the nice weather was temporary, and we are in rainy weather in Rochester again. Yes, we are. Yeah. And it's summer, and it's hot and humid. Wait 15 minutes, it'll change. Yeah, which is terrible for both of us, this hot and humid thing. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, it do- doesn't suit me well. I-, I spend a little bit more time in the walk-in, that's for sure. Yeah, which, I mean, has to be kind of nice in a lot of ways, doesn't it? It's one of the reasons I chose to be a butcher as opposed to a line cook. <laughs> I-, I spend my, so I mean, I spend my entire winter in an ice shed. Mm. Because I'm, I'm a curler. Mm-hmm. So I spend my entire winter going from the cold to the cold. Sure. And it sounds wonderful to I, me. I couldn't be more comfortable. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. I see all the, the, the tiny people just freezing and wearing like giant jackets. I'm like down to a long sleeve shirt and sometimes a t shirt. Yeah. Oh, it's great. When I hired my staff, I, I brought them all into the main meat walk in and I said, uh, This, for the record, is my climate. <laughs> They're all shivering around me, you know? Yeah. Waiting, just waiting to hear the word leave. Yeah. But that's my spot. So, So, I am talking to Kevin McCann from McCann's Local Meats, which has been open for, what, a month now? Six weeks. How about it? Six weeks. Wow. You know, it's, it's amazing how much press has gone around it in the last six weeks. And none of it solicited, uh, which is even more satisfying to me. Um, we didn't seek anybody out. We didn't uh, pay for anything, but um, it's a testament, I think, to uh, the way that people have been responding to the idea as a whole, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I can't say enough about how much good it's done for us inside the shop as well, because the more people it reaches, the more people find out about it, the more people have a chance to eat some good meat, and it's a good thing. Well, it's got to keep the spirits up, too, you know? Oh, Yeah. I mean, when you when you get the rushes, I mean, it's of course it's crazy in the moment, but getting those rushes, I think I was there. Was it last Friday? And you said you had a crazy burger rush that day. We did uh, ninety seven hamburgers plus twenty other sandwiches in two hours and fifteen minutes. Wow! We're not set up to be a restaurant of of that quantity in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Um, in fact, you know, previous to that. You know, half of that number would have felt a little overwhelming, but uh, 
what an awesome time it was to not just uh, push out that much food, but to meet that many cool people and to feel great about what we were serving them. So, yeah, and I think that's one thing from coming in a few times um, is everybody that walks in, even when it's busy, is getting that attention. Yeah, and I think it makes a huge difference to give to give people that personal attention where they get to hear the story, listen to what you're doing, listen to why you're doing it, which we'll talk about later, of course. Right. Um, but I think that personal attention makes a big deal. It's as much a part of what we do, like the the interaction, the the old world service is as much what we're trying to do and, and focus on as, as the meat. You know, obviously the meat is the, for, you know, lack of a better pun, the, the meat of the conversation, but... That is the, that conversation, that interaction, that ability to know more about the product itself is is certainly a piece of what people are buying into. Yeah, I, I think people love people love buying the story. Hmm. Yeah, and, and is just as much, if not more so, than the actual product itself. Yeah, which I mean suits suits you guys well because both you and the staff seem very well suited to telling the story and just that excitement that's coming from the employees, I think helps a lot as well. It, um, it's always that, uh, so this is the fifth one of these I've helped design and build out and it, you go through the hiring process and there's that, that moment of, (laughs) man, I, I, I need to find some people with, with some personality. I'm looking for cooks ultimately. Right. And generally we're crass and, crude and <laughs> not very presentable and um i'm looking for people who are not only presentable but willing to engage in conversation with my customers and uh and and you know express all of these ideas and concepts that are crucial to what we do and yeah. um somehow i lucked out with some of them that i hired yeah and they, they seem like you know they're they're younger kids but the Man, they're, they're they're passionate about it. Yeah, they're excited, and it seems like they're learning a lot too. They they're putting in the hours. You know, they're they're willing to go through the process, and you know th- those those two things are vital to what we do. There's 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 no small easy way to sort of shoebox what we do. Right? It's you're not going to come in and just be a saute cook. Right. Or a fry cook, or <laughs> you know, you're you're not this one small category of thing. You're sort of many things all at once, and right. uh, wear all the hats, be happy about it, juggle all those balls, and get into it. Absolutely. So let's take one step back and say that McCann's is, I guess, what we're calling the edge of the wedge now, right? Yeah, that's what uh, Buckingham dubbed it, and they're they're running with it, and it's good for us because. You know, from a branding standpoint, like, you know, if you can find the edge of the wedge building, then here we are. Right. And it really is. I mean, you're you're at the basically the corner of Gregory and South Clinton. Yeah. Uh right right behind where the convenience store is there. That good old nine 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 bodega. The old triple nine. One of the guys I had on a few weeks ago was telling me I think it was about that place where we went and got these greasy burgers that he loved. And they were like three dollars. They do an God awful amount of fried chicken in that place. Oh, yeah. Wings and pieces. 
And uh, I love the stories you hear about the place because we have quite a few police officers that come into our spot for lunch. Oh, sure. And even those guys were telling me that that's where, when they were underage, we're going to get beer. <laughs> so uh, clearly it's it's been servicing the uh, the youth of Rochester for a while. Yeah, absolutely. And so this, this brand, brand new beautiful building pops up in right next to that. Mm-hmm. You guys are in the back of the parking lot, the cub room in the front. Right. And, you know, it's more in Swilberg, but, you know, uh, the playhouse popping up down the street. Yep. Man, this, this area is really seeing that uh, business investment. Yeah. Because it's been, it's been a while since a lot of things, anything really popped up in that area. You can see uh, sort of people have seen what's gone on in, in the South Wedge, right? Right. And the South Wedge, after you leave South Ave, you know, maybe it fades away pretty more quickly than it should. Pretty fast. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's why, you know, Buckingham, I think, was trying to capitalize on being at the edge of the wedge. And, you know, the South Clinton area, it's it's got some cool old buildings, man. Even the building that we're in right now. So you say this, this new building pops up. Yeah. It, it was the old ward heating and cooling supply building. Uh, and so the building that I'm in was a... Uh, a warehouse for this HVAC supply company. Uh, so it was this gigantic cavernous 20-foot tall ceiling, steel beam and cement floor open space, yeah. right? And um, it was this perfect vanilla box to be able to go into if you had a little bit of vision and sure. and just sort of create, you know? And we took 33 work days and and turn that place into even more than I was kind of hoping it would be. So that's insanity by the way. <laughs> 33 work days. Yeah. To, to take that from bare to what it is now. My contractors every single day reminded me of how insane my time schedule was. Uh I bribed them can constantly across <laughs> along the way with the prospect of a pig roast. Yeah. And so the weekend before we opened when I should have either been resting up to prepare myself to open this business or working on the organization and preparation of products for opening this business, uh, the Sunday directly before the Monday we opened, we had all of the contractors in, we roasted a whole pig and uh, had a nice little party. That's awesome. Yeah. And yeah, so the, the reason why I was saying that's crazy is if you haven't seen the interior of the building yet, it's kind of a, a pristine monument to to meat cutting in a lot of ways. I mean, it's everything is everything's beautiful. There's a uh, a what'd you call it a sausage curing or a, yeah the a charcuterie, dry, a dry, box, charcuterie yep. box up front. Yep. There's a giant dry aging room. Yeah. For you know whole or half or parts of animals, mm-hmm. whole primals. You know, I saw some beautiful uh, strip loins in there oh, yeah. and some other parts. Um, I call it my Coliseum of Carcass. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I tried to, without a doubt, my whole thought process with all of this uh, was to create a, a meat playground, right? You know, my wife and I have worked in a lot of restaurants throughout New York City <laughs> and, uh, and for me in, in Syracuse and Rochester, Hudson Valley. Um, and 
you know, we've worked in the shoebox space that you have to produce 350 covers in and you're bumping into people and you don't have all the right equipment and uh, you leave at the end of the day and you're questioning why you did it, right? So my whole idea was I wanted to give my staff enough space, enough tools to produce the wide variety of products that we kind of need to to be able to work our way all the way through an animal the way that I want and um, and not feel at the end of the day like they were, you know, in bumper cars all day long. And, you know, so it's that was the idea. And, and I, I feel like I, I might have even overdone it a little bit. There might be too much space. There is a lot of space. I mean, it's it is it is a giant space in a lot of ways. And not not in a bad way. There's more space in the back than there is for the customers. Yeah. And it's. It's great. You ever there the stations, and I got a little tour of the place. Um, beautiful smoke machine in the back, yeah. where for for the hot dog cooking and everything else. Amazing technology too with the programming. Yeah, I mean, that was another one of those areas where there was a couple of areas with this build out where things are pretty straightforward, right? Like you know you're going to need a bandsaw, you know you're going to need a grinder, sure, you know you're going to need a, a sausage stuffer, and these things are are fairly standard of of what you're going to do. Um, but things like the smoker, things like the, the meat rail system and the, the engine hoist I installed to, to get meat from, uh, uh, the, the pallet it comes in on up to it. All of these things were, were value-based purchases to, again, make life easy, to make sure that we're able to produce great product and do it in a way that isn't going to kill us along the way. Pretty the, beneficial thing, right? Yeah, the the smoker is is wild though. So for a local business, uh, I imported that thing all the way from Oregon. Um, it's a Windows based program. It's digitally maintained uh, across the board with cook temperature, smoke intake, damper position, humidity control. Uh, there's it's got its own compressor, so I can. At the end of a cycle, while I'm at home playing with my son, it'll turn itself off and then turn itself into a, a single door reach-in refrigerator. Um, you know, it, it and all of this is on printable uh, uh, readout, so that you know, for all of my HACCP maintaining programs for for you know uh, regulatory bodies, I can prove that everything I'm doing is is solid. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And it, it is a beautiful piece of equipment, too. I tell people I make babies in there as well. <laughs> I have yet to do it, but maybe. Give it time. Maybe. Yeah. Um, so we talked a little bit about the facility. And, I mean, still every time I walk in there, I I love seeing the meat being cut in front of you. Yep. And so let, let's, let's talk about the meat itself. So name of the business is McCann's Local Meats. Right. And the meat is by definition local, so you've got you've got beef, you've mm-hmm. got chicken, you've got turkeys. We've got turkeys. You've got turkeys. You're working on. You've we've, got pigs. We've got pigs. We've got um, our first batch of lamb. In. We've got some more coming in uh, Thursday. We've got ducks coming in on Thursday. Oh, that's exciting! Um, I'll be getting in some goat. It sounds like at the end of August. Awesome. Um, you know, uh, love goat, and it's all. I mean, so the we, we're working with three different farms for the beef. We're working with 
Um, Seven Bridges Farm in Lima. We're working with Schrader Family Farms down in Romulus. We're working with Youngman Farms out towards Ontario. Um, we're doing all of our pork from Schrader Farms in Romulus as well. We're doing all of our chickens and eggs from Seven Bridges Farm as well. Um, the lamb and the duck are coming from Finger Lakes Farms down towards Ithaca. Uh, the turkeys we're getting through Headwater Food Hub and mm-hmm. uh, an Amish farmer that they do some some business with who runs a 100% organic farm. Uh, and it, as I knew would happen from previous experience, these things start to snowball upon themselves. Yeah, More farmers come in, have product that they're very proud of and would love to see in my cases. And we're going to be able to work with these people as we have the ability to, right? But um, we started off with some great farmers. They've been really kind of providing us with as high a quality of meat as I can expect. And Mm -hmm. uh, they're doing things in a a really uh, great way with, you know, no pesticides or herbicides on their farms, no hormones uh, injected, no antibiotics uh, given to the animal unless they're sick. And, you know, that makes me feel good because at least it's not being fed preventatively. But, of course, if we're sick, we're going to take medicine. So why not, you know, at that point take care of the animal as well? Absolutely. And that, that makes sense. And the, people love tossing these buzzwords out. Right. You know, never antibiotics, and never GMO, never other stuff. Sometimes right. it makes sense. And, you know, the GMO thing is tough. Uh, you know, we... we we're not, you know, going to lie to a customer and tell them that all of our animals are completely GMO free either. Sure. Some of them are getting some corn and good luck finding non GMO corn around in this area. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, and is a hundred percent grass fed beef, uh, better for the earth because it's a, uh, less of a carbon footprint. It's a more sustainable practice. And uh, over the long term. Um, there, there's a lot of different reasons why that is great for the environment as a whole. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that it's going to take some time for me to be able to, uh, sort of change some pallets, uh, over to people who are prepared to eat hundred percent grass because it is, it is, a. uh, it, there's a little bit of a learning curve there from, from a pallet standpoint. It's a big difference. I mean, just. I mean, people are used to their beef looking a certain way. Correct. They're used to walking into a store mm-hmm. with a white styrofoam container, mm-hmm. and beef is always the same color. Yep. It's always the same color. It's always the same consistency. Yep. When you're looking at locally raised animals, there's a little, there's more variety. There's more, I mean, more variation in the meat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not always that super bright red because it's real. Yeah. People ask about grading, right? They come in all yeah. the time and they say, so So, what do, is this all prime? Uh, and, you know, they'll also come in and say, so this is all 100% organic, right? And there's all of these, these terms, these phrases, these labels that people throw out. And the thing I, I try to be consistent about telling my customers is, I really don't believe in labels at all. I believe in farmers, right? Yeah. And so that's why I took the time to to go to farms, to talk to farmers, to see their process, to see the animals that they're breeding, the the food that they're feeding, to get down and dirty on their process, right? So that 
I can feel good about partnering with this person because ultimately what it comes down to is from a local niche farm standpoint, I can't tell any of these beef farms, okay, here's the deal. If I get in a beef I don't like, you're just going to have to take it back, right? (laughs) It just doesn't work that way. right? So at that point now I have to get an animal, and there are these anomalies, right? 95%, 90% of what I'm going to get from these people is going to be high choice into prime because of the programs that they're practicing, right? Right. Um, But every now and then, and it actually happened recently, we got an animal that came in. It was a little lighter in color. It was a little bit less marbled. It was, uh, you know, that anomaly. And you know what? And I had some really great conversations with customers about exactly why that is and exactly why if they're going to buy into this idea of local animals and and using the whole animal and, and eating their way around an entire carcass, then... For all of those same reasons, we have to feel good about every now and then enjoying this anomaly for what it is as well. Sure. And it's different, and it doesn't have to be worse. Right. It's different. Correct. And from that, I'd, I'd like to go into, you talked about whole animal whole animal butchery. Right. And which is really what you're doing is whole animal processing, which is different from what you'd get at most grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Because most grocery stores, you can go in, you can always buy a strip steak, you can always buy a ribeye, you can always buy, uh, you know, sirloin, and you can always get that. Right. Um, You're doing, and we're talking about beef specifically, but that goes for any other animal, really. Correct. Um, You're doing whole animal butchery. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what that means for customers and getting some interesting stuff, too? So... Pretty much in any city, and depending on what city you go to and what region of the country that you go to, there'll there'll be certain regional items that people are sort of more familiar with. But in general, people know what a ribeye is. They know what a strip steak is. They know what tenderloin is. They know what sirloin is. Um, and after that, uh, the idea of what certain cuts are, and they'll know what London broil is, but the, 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 the familiarity with cuts really sort of erodes very quickly and you know people always think of the shoulder the chuck as being nothing but ground meat right Right. um but i cut nine different steaks from a shoulder and that's awesome you know ranch steaks are delicious flat irons are delicious terrace majors are delicious the steak that rochester has identified with with the denver steak is delicious um and the same happens with the entire animal. There are these great cuts that once we've had a conversation with a customer and sort of relieved all of that stress involved with culinary uh, uh, nerves, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do. Right. It's in, When it's in the end, it's, it's a steak. There's only so many different cooking methods, right? Right. And so you you kind of take a step back and you know you're either going to grill it or you're going to sear it in a pan or you're going to braise it or you're you know there's there's just these there's only so much to do and so once you kind of relieve that stress people can go home and they can enjoy these cuts you get down uh, to the dish that they're trying to make the you know and it might be just as simple as hey I want to just throw something on the grill or hey I was thinking about 
having tacos tonight. Like, yeah. what's going to be my best meat for tacos oh, that sure. isn't ground beef, right? So, um, you, there's just so much great there, and and you know, it's the whole animal gig is it, it's it's fickle, right? You know, because now you're going to get people who come in. They're they're like the Denver steak. Sure. Oh, I love the Denver steak. I love the Denver steak. And next thing you know, it's the first bistro steak that I'm sold out of. Yeah. So now when the customer comes in, the next piece of uh, uh, challenge that I have is, okay, so I don't have this, but I don't want to tell you no, right? right? I want you to still be able to have the steak experience that you're looking for from a value standpoint as much from a, a, a flavor and texture standpoint. So where do I send you next, right? right. How can I start to group different muscles together in similar categories to accomplish that. And and again, it it happens one customer at a time, one stake at a time by building trust in so you liked this, you're going to like that, right? And, and okay, so you had this last time, you're going to like this too next mm-hmm. time. Um and it's it's all part of it, you know. And the people who are buying into it are really having a good time eating their way all the way around the animal. Yeah. Uh so so, let's clarify what a Denver steak is for people because it's it's I don't think it's very it's not very common yet. No, I, I wouldn't say. I mean, you're not going to go into a grocery store and find a Denver steak anywhere, right? Um, but you know, you'll often hear about flap meat, right? Uh, whether it's sirloin flap or chuck flap, and what we're talking about is chuck flap or mm-hmm. or uh, underblade, and. Um, it's a cut that is actually the extension of the short rib as it moves through the away from the actual short rib itself and into the chuck roll right underneath uh, the shoulder, the actual uh, uh, spinal structure of the animal, and it um, it makes it sound like it would be this brazing cut, like you'd have to cook it low and slow for these long periods of time. But sure. it's it's a really nice grilling steak. Nice mid-rare steak. Uh, it's got some tremendous marbling to it. It's going to be leaner on the outside, not as much fat cap at all to, to really kind of caramelize. But it, um, in a lot of ways, it looks like a strip steak, and I think that's what people are identifying with. Sure. Uh, looks like a boneless strip, and they say, I'll take it. <clears throat> yeah. And whatever, you know, and... and that subconscious uh, decision that they've just made because of what they feel like it looks like, great. Good for you. You're going to love it. There's your introduction. Right. So the one I had uh, that I bought last weekend was the oyster steak. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, I was excited when I heard what it was and more excited when I ate it. <laughs> Man, that was delicious, super tender. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, could, I could see how some people, if you look at, Hey, you look at the dry aged ribeyes. Mm-hmm. Well, they're they're not cheap. No, they're they, not. They take a lot of time. Yeah, it's a local cow. There's only so many ribeyes on a steak. Mm-hmm. I mean, on a cow. Yeah, and they're dry aged. So they lose weight. You trim away from it. It's taking up real estate. It's so there's a lot of reasons why it's it's not cheap, right? right. They're going to be absolutely delicious, right? Yeah. But an oyster steak can be just as much fun. Right? I loved it. Um, 
and and there's an there's a, an even higher level of exclusivity on the oyster steak because at least for you know the ribeyes on one animal at least I'm going to be able to get 16 single bone ribeye steaks. Sure. For the oysters, there's literally only two pieces that together will probably add up to like you know just over a half a pound. Yeah. Because um, I had mine and it was mine was an eight ounce. It was an eight ounce cut. Mm-hmm. I paid five dollars for it, mm-hmm. and I had one of the better steaks I've taken off a grill in a while. It was it was amazing. So oysters, people may have heard of them from poultry, right? Turkeys at Thanksgiving, chickens and whatnot. The oysters on poultry, it's this really nice sort of dark meat nugget of deliciousness that's behind the hip mm-hmm. uh, on the you know on the the uh, the thigh, and it's. Uh, the same thing on beef, you know, it just inside the hip, there's this, what almost looks like a, a spider web of, uh, a, a, of a piece of meat. Cause it's got this sort of spider web look of, of fat, uh, going through the grain structure of it. Right. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a weird cut to look at. Yeah. It's a weird cut. You know, when you see a skirt say, you're like, okay, the grain is that way. There's no hiding it. Right. This one is kind of splayed all over the place. Sure is. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, uh, it's a cut that even in a lot of, you know, butcher shops of this nature, they they might not even put it out there. Some of them will call it a spider steak, like I just refer- sure. referenced to. Um, but some won't even put it out there because they think it might be taking the whole entire animal utilization thing a little bit too far, right? They'll just yeah. grind them. But um, oh, what a shame! To me, it's it, it's it's got some great flavor. It's got some cool utilization to it. I mean, you can treat it like a, a nice little individual fajita style cut, you know, yeah. and slice across the grain, have a great time. But uh, you know, and that could be said about a lot of steaks. But um, it, you know, it, it's you find a way to use it. I keep teaching the guys who I'm I'm training. You know, every time you put a knife to a piece of meat, you're costing money. Not because you're you're wasting anything, but because you're putting labor into something, right? Absolutely. And now you're starting to trim things, and you're losing weight, right? So your yield isn't as high. So every time I put a knife to a carcass and I take something off of it, it's with a a, a specific dish or a specific cooking method in mind. So, yeah, and that's, um, you know. Coming from, I mean, my, my day job, I'm, I'm a project manager, so you think about that when you're when you're quoting things. You think about that when you're charging a customer, mm-hmm. and you have to be efficient. You have to say, hey, this does cost time. Yeah. And for, you know, it's as trite as it is, time is money. Absolutely. Their hours cost money, mm-hmm. and that, that shows up, and the more efficient you can be, the better it is for everybody. Yeah. And sometimes the less processing, the better. Yeah. I, um, I agree with that, too. Uh, so you mentioned ground meat. So that's another thing people are very accustomed to. Ground meat is 80-20 chuck. Ground meat is 75-25 or 90-10 or 95-5. Right. You know, eye of round or whatever they use to make sure. to make 95-5 beef. And, you know, that's that's another one of those things. So people will come in and they'll be like, is this ground sirloin? Is this ground round? Is this ground chuck? What is this? 
And, you know, the conversation that those terms in general are a reference to the fat lean content that you just talked about more than they are a specific reference to where the meat came from. Which is kind of weird in of itself. So somebody made these decisions and they said, here's what it is. Um, And then, you know, even worse than that to me in my mind are the people who are looking for specific blends because they read in some magazine somewhere that the combination of ground brisket, ground short rib, and um, ground, you know, whatever piece on the animal makes the perfect blend of ground beef, right? Sure. And what I have to, I'm what I'm happy to explain to these people is the the reason why blends exist, right? The reason why... You know, every celebrity chef on the Food Network has a a specific blend that they like to use is because they're using commodity flavorless beef to begin with. And so what they're trying to do is artificially replicate what I am able to do very naturally by utilizing one animal, right? So I'm, I'm so happy to tell all of my customers that the ground beef that I have in the container in my case every single day came from one animal. You go to a grocery store, it might have one pound, might have 10 animals from four states and three countries in it, right? right? Which, if you think about it, makes it sound like it was a really well-traveled animal. <laughs> but the scariness of that reality is sort of mind-boggling. It really is. Um, and so... You know, we take everything that's left after steak, after roasts, after, you know, bone-in items like short ribs and so on and so forth. We take everything that's left and we benefit from, you know, the less tender, more flavorful cuts, the more tender, less flavorful cuts, really nice fat from places around the brisket, from places around the chuck, really heavy, flavorful meat like what is in, like, the shank. Right. Oh yeah. And we blend all of that together into this really nice eighty twenty mix, and we grind it much coarser than what you'll find in most grocery stores. Thankfully. And I find that what it gives you is a real, true representation about what ground beef should be texturally, flavorly, flavor-wise, uh, uh, juiciness, uh, all the way across the board. Any any of these these characteristics that you're you're playing around with uh, from a, a flavor, texture, and, and look standpoint, we've got it right. So, yeah, and it it does it does make a noted difference. I've had the burger. And it was fantastic, and it's 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 the important part about that full animal cookery. Mm. It's utilizing everything. There shouldn't be anything left. Right. I mean, you're you're taking the bones. You're making stock. That's correct. And we're not going to call it bone broth. Yeah. Because because it is stock. <laughs> I mean, I, I I can call it bone broth, and I can sell it to you for five dollars for four ounces, like you know some of the places in Brooklyn. But that's just wrong. You yeah, know? it's broth. It, it's it's stock. Yeah, and it, it's great. I mean, it's not to say it doesn't have you know deliciousness and good properties about mm-hmm. it. But that's kind of a crazy trend, isn't it? I, it's this funny thing amongst butchers, you know. Do we do we think it's 
it's sort of ridiculous. Yes. Are we horribly sad about the trend of people wanting to buy good stock? Absolutely not. Because no. we're all trying to make it, right? right. We've all got it. Um, you know, and what we do with ours is we take it one step further. So as opposed to just putting in quarts of 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 this stock that we're making, we actually will reduce it. We we make the stock the first day and then we reduce it for two more days. And so what we're putting into our case is more like real actual bullion, right? Ooh, yeah. So your the idea is take a tablespoon of it, add some water to your taste. We're not putting any salt, any additives of any kind. It legitimately is roasted bones and water that yeah. make this wonderfully gelatinous, full-bodied, full-flavored, very uh, clear, lean, wonderful liquid. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. And it, it's great for the home cook that wants to make real soup. Real soups, real those, sauces, yeah. real chilies, real braises, all of these things. Yeah. And without, I mean, that's the hardest thing for the home cook, I think, is, and counting myself amongst them, I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it, is spending that extended time that you need to extract all of the goodness. You know, when, when you go get pho from a, a real Vietnamese place, that time that they spent roasting and cooking forever mm. and getting the most out of it, to do that at home is is crazy. Yeah. To do a real a real pho broth without doing all that work. So when I people will come in and they say, Well, I I'd really like to try. I'd I'd really like to to go through the process. And that's great. I if you're interested in the process, then I'm going to help you to understand the process, to get the proper ingredients, to to be successful. But when it comes down to it, it's cheaper to buy mine than it is to take the time and effort to do it in your own home. Sure. Because I have the right equipment, because we're doing it in larger batches that make it worthwhile. People don't necessarily understand it to make a good gallon of stock, you need eight to eight and a half pounds of bones. So people want to come in and grab four pieces that are like a pound and a quarter, and they want to go home and they want to accomplish what it is I've already done. And it's, they, they don't, you know, it's, it's sort of difficult to understand why they weren't as successful as they wanted to be. And, you know, and again, it's, it's all about, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to rip you off with my broth, you know, right? (laughs) (laughs) it's, you know, so I think we've talked enough about the place. I mean, there's I could talk about forever because I love it so much. But let's talk a little bit about you. So you're you're from Syracuse. I am. And from the wonderful land of Oz. Yeah. Chittenango, New York. Chittenango. I, I was reading Yeah, you know what? My buddy wrote a post about that. Uh Chris Clemens on exploringupstate.com. He wrote a post about that a few days ago. I had no idea all that was there. It's um it's a little over the top. It actually used to be even more over the top. When I was a kid, the diner in town was called Auntie M's. Uh, the ice cream place was Oz Cream. You know, it, it it was even more Wizard of Oz centric than it is now. But um, it it's you know the yellow brick sidewalks in Chittenango do exist. Still you know? there. The the Oz Festival every year is the biggest thing that happens in that town. Um, Slightly different from the other Oz Fest. 
which I forget the name of the town where it exists, but it's this horrible rivalry. Like, come on, guys. Well, I was thinking of the Ozzy Osbourne Festival. Oh, well, which would be slightly different from that, even. Yeah, then. but there's there's a second town in upstate New York. So L. Frank Baum was born in Chittenango, and okay. that's where the whole thing starts. And then there's the town where he supposedly wrote the book. Okay. And so, you know, there's this sort of rivalry between small towns, you know what I mean? And they try to see who can outdo each other with their festival. And wow. Whatever. See, now I want to learn more about that. I'm going to have to tell Chris. He'll, he'll, he'll love that. Yeah. I mean, he'll have to do a follow-up post about another <laughs> Wizard of Oz-themed town in yep. upstate New York. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Syracuse. I mean, uh, great town. Uh, you know, big Syracuse sports fan. Uh, you know, came out here to to Rochester after graduating uh, high school and attended SUNY Brockport. Uh, and I was having such a good time. I stayed there for five years and mm-hmm. uh, graduated with a degree in theater. Yeah, and obviously that leads to butchery. Very clearly, I think it's a direct. Uh, career path. Actually. Most theater kids are really built for it too. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of. So I get a lot of the whole uh, uh, Sweeney Todd thing, you know. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. So you did. So you went to culinary school. I did. Yeah. So you work in a lot of restaurants uh, with a degree in theater, and uh, serving tables was something that was lucrative, but uh, killing my soul one table at a time. <laughs> And so I transitioned into the kitchen and transitioning into the kitchen in a corporate restaurant got me into the management training process and uh, managing uh, a kitchen for a while and then um, deciding to really kind of take it more serious. Uh, And so I attended the Culinary Institute of America down in Hyde Park, New York. Which is one of, for those that aren't aware, one of the more notable locations of the Culinary Institute of America. Yeah, uh it's the it's the original, well, it's not the original location because there was it was in Connecticut before they took over this old seminary college on on the Hudson River. Um but it's got this very tremendous uh uh ambiance, this this real gravitas to the the property as a whole. You you step foot on the campus and you really are surrounded and overwhelmed with the professionalism everywhere you look. And uh, from a guy who was changing careers, who, like I said, was looking to take it all more seriously, it uh, it really, you know, struck a chord with me. Sure. And uh, it was real easy to to make the decision to uh, to take out some more student loans and to yep. uh, to go further into debt. Right, because it's not cheap. No, it's not. Um, but the amount of connections that you make from that school, the amount of uh, doors that are opened up to you through alumni and larger organizations who heavily recruit from that school, you cannot put a dollar amount on. Sure. And it's it's been tremendous for my career. And, you know, it's not for everybody, but it's been great for me. Yeah, but it is a diverse education as well. So you walk away with a lot of knowledge, and obviously you ended up in the the butchery side of things. Yeah, but at the same time, when you're opening a restaurant, when you're opening a you know a you know a hybrid restaurant butcher shop, you have to be able to do a lot of things. 
Yeah, and you know the education at the CIA is is such that they want it to be as broad as possible. They're they're at least while I was there, I know they've done some curriculum changes very recently, but uh, they weren't they were actively trying to not have you specialize in something. They wanted yeah. you to to have experienced, tried, and been around as much as possible, so that. When you went into the industry, you were able to either specialize yourself or walk into a situation and be able to mold yourself into that. Right. Um, you know, I, I the first kitchen I was in there, um, and again, for anybody who is a graduate of the CIA, you'll, you'll understand how things change because it didn't always used to be this way. The first kitchen that I went into where you're actually holding a knife in your hand was, was the meat kitchen. And it's in this this dungeon, this short ceiling dungeon. It was the old uh, 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 mortuary of this seminary college. That's right? awesome. And uh, so you, you go down into this place, and it it just feels dank and small and cold and perfect for meat. And um, <laughs> and I just I loved it. The, the professors that I had in there, Tom Schneller, Mark Alia, Hans Siebald, again, were also such big personalities and characters, and they all brought something different to the 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 instruction of meat that, man, I, I couldn't wait to get back there as much as possible. And uh, so I stayed on for a year and a half after graduation and did the, uh, the uh, teacher's assistant or apprentice or manager in training it's taken on different names and forms. Sure. Um, but I stayed there. It's supposed to be a year program. I stayed for a year and a half. And, um, you know, it, I, it was the best thing for me. And I worked across the, the, the river in Highland, New York, for um, Aaliyah's Meat Market, making uh, hundreds of pounds of sausages and breaking down hundreds of deer and doing all kinds of, of deli meats and Texas barbecue and retail work and broadening my my education that way as well. Sure. And it's 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 an interesting thing. I was talking, you know, I, I listened to a podcast out of Buffalo not that long ago where they talked about that where, you know, some of the chefs went to school, some didn't. Some learned, you know, starting from dishwasher and going sure. all the way up. And some got that diverse education, and one of the things they mentioned was that professionalism, that you have to show up. Yeah. If you don't show up, you are sent home, and you you don't get to do anything that day. Show up, look the part, act the part. You, I mean, it's mise en place is a word that gets thrown around a lot in, in kitchens, right? And translated, it means everything in its place, right? Mm -hmm. And. It, it it's more than just your ingredients, right? It's more than just your equipment, right? It's more than just having a sharp knife. It's having a sharp mind. It's having a, a very concise plan of what you plan to do with the time that you're going to be standing at your station in front of your cutting board, in front of your burners. Um, and having that plan, having that mind frame is is much about what they what, what they're trying to teach you know, young professionals. Yeah. And I think, I'm sure that's one of the more difficult things because cooking's taken on this, uh, you know, the new punk rock, the new rock star personality thing. And everybody wants that. to be the next Bourdain without right. understanding that he was working for years 
right. hard. A long time. Yeah. And, you know, if you read the books, you know, you can take whatever you want out of it. Mm. Uh, you can take out the fact that he was partying, that he was doing the crazy stuff. But the other thing you take out of it is the backbreaking labor, the, you know, the burns, the years. I mean, it's not like he got famous in, you know, 1995. Right. He was working in kitchens for 20-something years right. before he even dripped a bit of fame. Mm-hmm. And he was working you know, in relative obscurity, almost complete obscurity for 20, 25 years. Yeah. And, you know, it, one of the things that really struck me when, when we got to school is uh, you get there, and, and when I was there, you know, the whole progressive learning year. So you took one class every day, five days a week for eight hours a day. And you took that class for three weeks. And then after three weeks, you go to the next class. And so every single week, the cog turns one notch, right? Yeah. And you work your way all the way through their system. Um, but so you start, and you start with anywhere from like 60 to 100 students. And I, when I started, there were 96 of us. And the president, and we're all in this one room together. The president of the school stands in front of us, and he says, uh, welcome here. Uh, take a look around you because 60% of the people around you will not graduate with you. Wow. They will drop out, flunk out, drop back in the program. Some may move forward in the program faster for one reason or another. Um, but 60% of the people you're looking around at will not graduate with you. And I thought to myself, that's not only is that a crazy statistic, it's almost even crazier to advertise. But upon graduation, there it was with <laughs> less than 60% of the people that I started with were sitting around us. Sure. And um, it was, you know, we, like I said, there were 96 people there when we started. There were 40 something of us at graduation. Wow. And uh, it was, yeah, it, it's not for everybody. No. And because it's not a, it's not glamour. It's, I mean, you, when you took when you took your shoes off coming to my house today, you took them out off outside because you're cutting animals all day. Got to be respectful of the man's house, you know. <laughs> not not everybody's cool with a little animal fat, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think it would just smell great in here, but <laughs> that's me. Um, so I, I want to wrap up with Korean food. Yeah. So. You walk into McCann's, you look in the cases, there's a noticeable Korean tinge to um, a lot of the products. You've got bulgogi, you've got uh, marinated... Um, LA-style Colby, yeah, yeah. The, short, the short ribs, yeah. Yeah, with, 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 the, with the bones still in it, you yeah, got, yeah. You got side dishes that are Korean. Mm-hmm. So, you've got yourself a Korean wife. I do, uh, lucky enough to. Yeah, and did, did your fascination from Korean food start before that or did you gain more of an appreciation once you started in a you know a relationship um i can honestly tell you the only korean food i ate um for my life was what my wife gave me yeah and you know there were some things that she did that i thought were kind of racist i thought she was making certain things for me because i was a white man um <laughs> and come to find out some of that was true but a lot of it was you know she was making dishes that she knew would suit my palate. And so, you know, today we did the uh, the bulgogi sandwich uh, for lunch. And that's one of the very first things that she ever made for me. And 
you know, we were open for three weeks at the store, and I looked at her and I said, why haven't we made this sandwich yet? Like, have we lost our minds? You know (laughs) what I mean? Like, this is delicious. It's really approachable, too. Um, It's not going to weird anybody out. The flavors aren't so far out there that you're not going to be able to enjoy it. And and gosh darn it, it's delicious. Um, But, you know, the Korean food thing is is something that I think from a a whole animal perspective is very applicable as well. Sure. So we spent uh, a month in Korea in October, and uh, I was able to spend some time with some Korean butchers out there and just geek out That's watching exciting. their breakdown of things. Yeah. And um, if anybody finds me on Facebook, I've got a couple of videos out there uh, that I took while we were there. And pardon my French when you're listening to them, because some of the stuff blew my mind. <laughs> um, so long story short, you know, they're doing almost everything boneless. And they are, for as many muscles as I seem out individually and, and cut steaks from, they're taking it even farther than we do. I mean, just on short ribs, they've got six different classifications on short ribs. Wow. On what pieces of short rib in the location that they are in make better braising style short ribs as opposed to the LA style that we cut cross cut and grill. Sure. Um, versus there's a whole separate cut that as a thick muscle, you would then leave on the bone as a block, but butterfly out the meat itself so it's just as thin as the la style grilling pieces that we put in the case but it's this big sort of folded out piece of meat that they will marinate so there's all of these different things and 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 you know the same goes for pigs and and the the way that they go about it and and the whole korean barbecue thing to me one of the things about the whole animal game is and we talked about it a little bit earlier with a price point stand where where all that kind of fits into this, right? And I always tell customers, you know, I, I don't necessarily need you to come in every day and buy a whole bunch of meat for you and your family to eat. Sometimes I want you to not buy as much, and most of the time I want you to buy less meat, but I want you to buy quality meat when you buy it, right? Yeah. And the the Korean barbecue thing really leads to that where, you know, for the the vegetable side dishes called namu that they're they're eating, um, or, or or the banchan, or depending the banchan, on right. which whichever way it works, right? Because sure. some are all vegetable and some are some meat, right? Um, so all of these side dishes and the rice, and they eat soup at every meal almost, and which we made one of today. We made the duenjanchige today. I saw that. Which, which is, is like a Korean miso soup. Uh, very with, exciting. Oh, yeah. And, it, and it's one of the best soups that I've ever eaten in my life. And my wife makes a fantastic version of it. Um, so long story short, lettuce wraps, vegetables, a little bit of meat, right? And so you get done with a meal and you pigged out, mm. right? But so much of what you ate was vegetable, and a little bit of meat in there to satiate your 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 desire for some protein, sure. right? But you don't feel this tremendous weight in your stomach like you've just devoured half a cow. Right. And I think that's one of those things that people we we don't have a lot of now I'm going to use the word I don't I try not to <laughs> the tra- traditional Asian cuisines. Mm-hmm. 
And it, I don't like to use that with restaurants because I don't know. I've never been there. Right. I can't say for damn sure if it's traditional or not. My understanding of traditional Asian cuisines, it's meat for the sake of flavor, not for the sake of that insane quantity. Sure. When it comes to you know, traditional Chinese food, Japanese food, Korean food, Thai food, mm-hmm. it's part of the dish. It's a harmony of the dish. It's not a... You know, I mean, not that it's terrible, but it's not a steak salad. Right. You know, I mean, you're having a lettuce topped with a pound of steak. It's it's a balance. Everything yeah. in its place. Yeah. And, you know? you know, I mean, her parents, they, they flat out told me while we were there, we ate more beef and pork than they'll eat in a couple of months. Yeah. Because they were trying to satisfy my American desire, right? And <laughs> I was okay with that because, <laughs> you know, Korean beef... Is delicious, uh, and it was it was actually interesting to do some side by side comparisons with some Korean style barbecue with Korean beef side by side with American beef, and to taste those flavorful and textural differences. It was cool. Yeah, I mean, just because I'm intrigued, do they raise their animals differently? Is that is that the crux of it, or is it how they butcher? Is I it- think it's it's a, a cross between. Um, it's a cross between feed and breed. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, you know, the the animals that they were bringing in were, were and, I, and I don't know enough Korean to be able to describe the, the breeds themselves, but sure. they were actually, um, they were much smaller than a commercial breed of animal, much closer to what we bring in at the shop um, in the, you know, the 700 to 750-pound hanging carcass size, right? What we'd call a more naturally raised animal. Exactly right. And, you know, they're actually happy to tell you that their animals have much higher marbling scores than what American beef will, but that the outside fat will be much less. Which is really what everybody wants. So, you know, it... um, they're, they're very prideful about it. I mean, uh, American beef was a fraction of the cost of the Korean beef. Sure. Um, and, you know, some of these markets that we went to were just amazing. You know, you, we watched, uh, we went to the, the first market we went to, uh, we watched three guys, three men who, all of them roughly the same size. They were probably about five foot nine, five foot eight. They probably weighed 130 pounds soaking wet in the shade, okay? <laughs> and um, they're wearing, you know, like muscle shirts, rubber aprons. They've got one knife and one steel, and they walk up. And so the the, the truck pulled up with 150 sides of beef, okay? Wow. And this this little market, there's like these little cubicles, and each cubicle is its own independent business. And they've all got their own order of what it is that they're going to buy for the day, right? And so there's two guys who are running sides of pork to these individual little cubicles. And there's one guy who uh, starts off, and he takes off the entire spinal structure, all the way from the shoulder, all the way through the hip. Boom, boom, boom. And it probably takes him a minute and 30 seconds to do the whole thing <laughs> with some pretty, really impressive moves. Right. And then he walks away, runs to the next table, and does the exact same thing. One of the other two guys steps up, and he then debones the rest of the animal and breaks it down into pieces. And 
as soon as the guy who was doing the spinal structure is done with the next one, the third guy steps up. So you got two guys doing the same work that takes roughly as long as it takes the first guy to do two sides for the whole spinal structure. In I it was like just over an hour we watched these guys do about a hundred sides. Wow. The and we found out through my wife translating, they get paid by the carcass, not by the hour. And as soon as they're done, they can go home. Wow. So these guys were accurate. They were flying around. They were, it was truly impressive. Um, and so, you know, they saw the look on my face with a lot of these different things. They, were, they just kept asking, so are you going to bring us to the United States? Are you going to bring us to the United States? <laughs> and I was, you know, you know, legal logistics set aside. I would have loved to have done it because I would have a lot more time to do everything else for my business right? besides break animal. But um, it was really impressive to watch these guys work and to see the utilization. We went to a bunch of different restaurants and, you know, they've, they've got something they're doing with everything. Right. And it's great. Yeah. And it's, it's in a lot of ways, it's simplicity. It's using everything. And it's from what I've found for Korean food, I mean, I've had it not, not, not an insane amount of times, but enough. Mm-hmm. Full flavored, mm. and it doesn't have to be crazy funky. Although sure. it can be, yeah. And I'm sure in in Korea it's more funky because their tastes are more accustomed to it. You know, the 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 flavors that we had while we were there were fresh, were bright. You know, um, yeah. There's some fermented vegetable. Yeah. There's some fermented fish and some pickled everything and yeah you know but uh but nothing ever came across to me as unbelievably foreign or scary you know the first thing that we ate getting off the boat cuz her parents know I love it uh cuz they fed it to me a while back was abalone guts ooh that sounds fantastic so they got some fresh abalone from the market and uh you know, the first time I ever ate it was when they came and visit us in Syracuse. And uh, I came home from a 12 hour day of work and I'm dirty and I'm tired and I'm thirsty. And all I want to do is have a glass of whiskey. And I come home and her father is all excited to see me. Mom's cooking, wife is cooking. And I, I look on the table and uh, there's this plate with these weird amorphous green and blue and sort of like oil slick black parts in it and i i uh as i'm pouring myself a a glass of whiskey i look at my wife and i said so so what what is that (laughs) and she said oh that's that's abalone guts and i said okay yeah what are we gonna do with it and she said you're gonna eat that with my father and you're going to drink uh uh some soju I said, okay. And I, you know, <laughs> real nervous. And he's staring me down like, what's yeah. the white boy going to do? And exactly. So I eat the first one. And it's like the most fresh, briny oyster you ever ate in your life, mm-hmm. right? It was unbelievably delicious. And so he looked at me, saw my excitement, and then just pushed the dish at me and said, have them. And yeah. Goodness gracious! So first meal when we got to Korea, they they we did some abalone sashimi and uh, and some guts and you know you just got to be open to it. I think so. And sh- should I should I find soju to buy? Uh, so soju in the United States is tough, right? Soju is is delicious. It's somewhere between sake and vodka. 
um, as far as strength and flavor. Mm-hmm. But in the United States, it's so expensive. Oh, really? Import so fees and expensive. Stuff, yeah. In Korea, so we went uh, after one of these visits to a market. We went to a, a Korean barbecue. It's four o'clock in the morning, and the place is jammed. It's yeah. packed. Every table is full. There are soju bottles littering every table. And why? <laughs> because soju is $2 a bottle. No shit. $2 a bottle. Wow. And so you it, you don't think twice about going out with three other friends and having three bottles apiece yeah. and stumbling out of the place <laughs> bleary-eyed, right? Right, for $6. I mean, come on. Um, And so it, it's... Uh, it's it's a way of life out there, the soju. But oh, yeah. um, you know, it, out here, it's it, it painfully expensive. Yeah, interesting. So, I think that's about all I got for you today, man. Yeah, man, we we covered a lot. I think we did. I had some fun. Yeah. So, let's recap. This is McCann's Local Meats, located at what 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 is the address for people? Seven thirty nine South Clinton Avenue. Seven thirty nine South Clinton. And they can find you on social media. Uh, we are on Instagram. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook. Uh, you can call us at the shop at 585-EAT-MEAT, which is 328-6328. I mean, but you never call the number. Why would you ever call the number? Well, I, I mean, you can call Eat Meat. I mean, that's... I, it. You have no idea how happy I am that I have that phone number every single day. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. It's perfect. Um, so yeah, you can find us there. You can go to our website, McCannsLocalMeats.com, and uh, you can pretty much find me every single day behind my butcher table cutting some form of meat. Yep, and while you're eating, you can watch him cut meat, and I think that's probably the most satisfying thing you can do. <laughs> so thanks for coming in, Kevin. You got it, man. It was Appreciate fun. it. And uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. <laughs>